Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. We are the Lanky Guys. And uh, my name is Father Peter Muzzett. My name is Dr. Scott Howell. And uh, we were just talking with somebody this morning who uh, is like leading a Bible study out of uh, Ann Wagner is uh, leading a Bible study out of the the uh, the Lanky Guys. It's not leading a Bible study out of Ann Wagner. Out of Ann Wagner, it's Ann Wagner leading a Bible study. Is that what I said? A little bit. That's all right, dude. I've been studying rhetoric. Okay. And, um, I found a book called um, Eloquence by Mark Forsyth, and he—he's—that's—that's he, that's a very eloquent-sounding name. I know. Isn't it? And he's this kind of like snarky British guy, who, uh, who, who but goes, eloquently so, eloquently so, and he goes through like forty-nine rhetorical devices and Dude, compares them to like how sh- and shows how Shakespeare used them, and it's like everything from like Pulp Fiction to to Shakespeare to oh, really? to yeah, like Britney Spears and pop songs to like old literature and scripture. Like it's the most wide diverse understanding of rhetoric and how it's found in all these different parts of culture and uh, wow. and one of the rhetorical devices I can't I, I can't remember what they're all called I have to do the whole thing again they're all British but, um, sounding but uh, the uh, well actually they're all Greek sounding and really? and one of the rhetorical devices is is the flipping of word order uh, intentionally to mess with people's minds and it was really fun that is fun. Yeah. I like that you give, uh, you've been giving kind of reading, uh, subtle reading recommendations every week. Have you noticed that? Uh huh. Your book about clouds was last week. Oh, yeah. This book about rhetoricians. Was this Reto- week. Rhetorical devices. Mm. Etymologicon. Etymologicon. I have uh, a shout out. Shout it out. Oh, I have a, an apologetic shout out because Uh-oh. I was supposed to give this shout out last week and I forgot because things got away from us. I need to give a shout out to Lisa Pierce, who Lisa. was was maybe still is, hopefully still walking the Camino to well, Santiago. She, no, she's is walking. She back? No, she's walking the way of Saint Francis through Italy. I thought she was on the Santi- uh, the, the Camino. It's, it's a foot pilgrimage. It's like the Camino, oh. but it's it's like uh, to Rome in the foots of Saint Francis. It's really oh. cool. It's very unique and a new pilgrimage that a uh, lot cool lot less that? people are doing. But it's. But like, dude, well, worldwide foot pilgrimage is starting to take off, man. Well, Matthew, her husband, who's a good friend of ours, wanted us to give her a shout out so she'd hear um, while en route. En route, on pilgrimage. That's awesome. She would hear her shout out. So I meant to give it last week, but Lisa, um, I hope you're having a blast and it's wonderful out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah Say yeah. hi to St. Frankie for me. Yes. And a couple of people... Um, Strangely enough, a couple of people have sent me emails asking, um, saying we had mentioned that I had a baby daughter a few months ago, but not knowing her name. And her name is Evelyn, for those of you who have asked. So here's a shout out to Evie, who's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> no, no, she's <laughs> decidedly she's, not. She's lucky to have her nookie at this point. Binky nookie. <laughs> what, what do they call those things? Well, a pacifier. I Passy. think is what you're probably referring to. Passy. Oh, I also need to give one more shout out to David Kovach, who is the father of Hannah Kovach. Oh yeah, who um, remember she used to yeah be a student here. I saw her in Colorado Springs recently, but her dad is an avid listener. So well, shout done. out to the Kovach family down in uh, the Springs. Um, good. That's my shout outs. I always forget, so I need to get them out of the way. Not out of the way. That sounds negative. <laughs> I need to fulfill my promises. Yeah, the beginning. Hey, man, you are a father who fulfills his promises. Oh, hey, uh, hey, Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Scott Hahn. No, well, I'm the other Dr. Scott. 
Oh, oh. oh just kidding. Hey, we're into the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. Do you want to know the irony of the readings for the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity? Please, just, just start it off right. Nothing about them mentions the Trinity. I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get more to that later. <laughs> one of these, one of these, none of these things, things is like, like what they claim to be. Um, okay. So our first reading is from Exodus Movement of the People. We haven't done that in years, brah. That's not true. I think we did it every single episode. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Exodus 34, uh-huh. 4b to 6, and then jumping to 8 to 9. Yeah, we just skipped verse 7. For for good reason. For good reason. We'll get there. Our responsorial psalm, ironically enough, is coming from the book of Daniel. <laughs> um, Our responsorial Daniel? It's so funny how the scriptures do this, or how the liturgy does this once in a while. So yeah, it's not a psalm. It's Daniel. And Daniel chapter 3, verses 52, 53, 54, 55, and 56. Ironically, not verse 52 through 56. It's but each Can I confess something? Confess so away. So it, it was late last night that I was getting around <laughs> to studying these, because it's just been, things have been hectic. So I was studying them late last night, and I was looking <laughs> at the responsorial psalm, and I was trying to look up Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 52, and I was like, it doesn't go to verse 52. It only goes to 26. And I was so, and my mind was just shutting down. I was like, I don't know what to do. The Bible's not right. And I forgot that DN is, is the abbreviation Daniel. for Daniel, not DT, which is Deuteronomy. Um, but what, it took me almost a half an hour of not knowing what to do with myself. <laughs> well, in defense of Daniel, it is a canticle. So it is. No, no, granted. Okay. And then our second, our reading de segundo. Second reading. The reading el second. My Spanish is terrible. <laughs> that was that was terrible. Yeah, that was that was just offensive. I'm sorry <laughs> that that hurt everybody. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Right. Our second Corinthians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Our second Corinthians 13, 11 through 13 yeah, is going to be the second reading today. It sure is. And our gospel, the famous um, so-called football verse, because <laughs> this is the one you always see on signs at football games for some reason. Dude, I want to, I haven't seen that very much recently. I, know, I need I feel to like bring one we back. Grew, we grew up with that, but yeah, I don't feel like you see it anymore. Like you always saw somebody with the John 316, man. Yeah, not anymore. We should just go to football games and hold up. With the we, John 316. You know what we should do? We should hold up just uh, random Bible verses or ones that we find. <laughs> Daniel 352. <laughs> you know, I was like, what is that? They're like, they're like <laughs> blessed be God, are you father? Well, that's appropriate. You're like, that's blessed good. Absolutely. Dude, Leviticus 13, all the ways to sacrifice a goat. <laughs> Dude, okay. we should have something like dash the head of your enemies against the rocks. Or like, if you're like playing the St. Louis Rams, we can have the ways to sacrifice Rams from Leviticus. Oh, no, the, the CSU Rams. Oh, see, I didn't even. Dude, we now totally have somewhere. to make signs. We should make t-shirts of so this year's CU CSU. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, they just eat, with a, they eat buffalo burgers before the game. Then we're making we're making Leviticus t-shirts. Absolutely, right, that's an internal on. conversation that you okay. guys don't need to get. <laughs> All right, the gospel is coming from John. Oh, I just said three sixteen through eighteen, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> that's all I have to say. So, um, so we're we're up in Sinai. Sinai. What is going on with my language ability? I even ate. Oh, breakfast. I thought that was a joke. <laughs> you really just said <laughs> no. Sa- I really just messed it up. Oh, you know what it is? Okay. I ate a Red Bull. I oh, drank that, a Red that, Bull. That for always breakfast. messes you up. I had apparently three waffles. I ate three waffles in a Red waffles Bull. Waffles looked good. I saw your leftover waffles on the counter. It was good. I'm not even hungry, but you know, you see something, you're like, ooh. 
You're like, okay. I like waffles. Yeah, I just looked at that. So. Microwave waffles, man. Well, well, you know, Moses got up early in the morning on Mount Sinai. <laughs> yeah, he did. He um, okay. he didn't have breakfast though. Okay, um, we can talk about these individually, which we of course should, but I want to point out the theme that I see running through them, which is a very strange theme, and it's a theme that you don't. I, these are. Misleading is the wrong word. Okay. But there's this subtlety to what's going on this week that um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know what we said three we, three years ago for this podcast, but I'm fascinated by what's happening here because every one of these re- uh, uh, the gospel aside, let's talk about the first three. Okay. The first the gospel fits this too, but it's a bit of a different reality. The first three readings, so Exodus, Daniel, and then Second Corinthians, all of the passages are these really happy. Um, praising passages about God and his goodness. Okay. Every one of them comes smack in the middle of the worst circumstances that you can imagine. (laughs) So every one of these passages is this happy, jolly, praise be to God passages in the middle of horrific circumstances, which you don't catch unless you read the context. But once I started to it was the Daniel one that really got me once I realized what's actually happening in Daniel. And I was like, well, what's happening in Exodus? Oh, my gosh. What's happening in Second Corinthians? Oh, my gosh. These are terrible passages right. with these really bright spots, which is all we get this week. And because they're um, taken on their own without the context and the liturgy, I just have to think. I mean, the fact that they all fit this, uh, fit this model means the church is telling us something. Right. And I don't know what it is. I'm not sure what the church is telling us. So let me give you an example. So we'll start with Exodus, right? Um, Exodus 34. Uh, it says, early in the morning, Moses went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, taking along the two stone tablets. These are brand- th- th- This begins in uh, chapter 34, verse 4b. Verse 4a talks about how Moses had to build new stone tablets. Because well, he had he had just gone to, he had gotten the law of the Wait, Lord. Can you pause first? Yeah. Can I pa- can I can I put that in the form of a joke? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Who is the only person to break all 10 commandments in the Bible? Oh, uh, at once. At once. Dang it. <laughs> Shoot. Moses. It's Moses because he broke the stone tablets. Ba- basically, he got the he got like the word of God. He's in like this ecstasy. He's he's been like he received the law of the Lord. He's been up on a mountain. He's it's, been seeing the face of the Lord. It's amazing. Meanwhile, they're they're getting a little cray down. It's it's a it's they, a little bit like Daytona down there. Daytona, <laughs> Daytona on spring break. What a strange reference. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's like Daytona. Um, it, it, what is what is the euphemism the Bible uses? They rose up to play, quote unquote. Yes, and 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 the cries were neither a victory of defeat. Yeah, and so so it's like cries. so basically he gets super honked because he's been in ecstasy <laughs> and he comes down and he's like ah and he just throws the tablets down. Well, and, and to, to makes them drink their own idols. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the sin of the golden calf, right? So um, we're, we're kind is of that pre- what we are? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so in chapter 32, we're in 34. In chapter 32, and and just to just to feel the weight of this, I'm sure we've talked about this plenty before. Um, I think it's Scott Hahn who gave my gave my favorite analogy for this. Others have probably given it, but he gives the analogy. I mean, the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, which we celebrate at Pentecost. Remember, that's what Pentecost recalls. Mm-hmm. So we're fresh from that moment. The giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, in a lot of ways, for the Hebrew tradition, was like. Uh, you know, we think of law as sometimes this dry rules and these things that we have to do. But the Hebrews saw the law as God's wedding vows to us. 
So it's as if Moses is up on the altar on behalf of all of Israel, receiving the wedding vows, wedding all of Israel back to their God, to their bridegroom. It's this spousal moment, right? And as Moses is, um, the people are being wedded to their God, down below, the people are sleeping with the caterer, is the analogy. <laughs> like you're at a wedding and the bride is having an affair with the caterer in the other room. That's kind of the weight of this. And you're like, oh my gosh, It's this is the wedding ceremony and they're off worshiping another god from Egypt. So the, the Hebrew people actually called the golden calf moment the second fall. And they put it on par with the original sin wow. of Adam and Eve. They're like, this is on the same plane as that. This is the second fall of Israel. This is a huge deal. And so right after that happens, yeah, Moses breaks the stone tablets because he's so ticked off. And then he has to make some, and he has to, he has to to make them again. He had to carve out the the things to bring to the Lord again. And like, I'll tell you. He didn't have to carve the first ones, right? No. The Lord's own finger wrote them. Wait, did the Lord's finger write the second ones? I think they wrote the second ones as well, but I think he had to hew the rock out of, then like, by the way, I'm just saying carrying a couple of stone tablets, I don't imagine that those things were light. I've never thought about that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? At least he didn't have to carry them up. He just had to come down with them. So that's something, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he has this law, the, the wedding vows again. But this is right after that happens. That's the moment where God basically says to Moses, I'm done with this people. I've worked hard. I've, I've performed these 10 plagues and these mighty signs in Egypt. I've walked them through the Red Sea. I've done all these things. They've shown me how they feel. We're done. And there's this great moment in Exodus 32 where Moses, who has become... Um, who has taken on the role of redeemer in a certain sense, that he sets the people free. Now he takes on the role of intercessor. And God, and I don't think, you know, I think God is doing this for Moses' benefit. But Moses enters into this, no, you have to stay with us. Like, what will, he uses this great argument. He's like, what will the Egyptians think? If they saw you do all of these things to free us and wed yourself to us and do all this, and now we have this huge fall and you just abandon us, what will the world think right. of you? And he goes through this whole thing, intercessing on behalf of his people. But it's in the midst of this moment that God's like, I want nothing to do with these people anymore. And Moses is like, no, you've got to stick with us. Well, and, and it's God well, saying, I'm going to hide my face when, from you all. And he says that I, he's, he's like, I'll make a great nation of you. He's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'll stick with you, Moses. You're cool. He's like, he's but like, these cool. freaks. But we done. But Moses is like, no, he actually identifies even with the sinfulness of the people and says, no, I'm, I'm one of them. And like, yeah. which is, it was just actually, stuck with all of us, which is actually the redemption. If you think about Moses, it's the redemption of his slaughter of the Egyptian where yeah. he, he discovers his identity with them and yep. goes towards murder rather than uh, going towards life. Moses. Yeah. I disagree. I think that's a fundamental misreading of that passage. Talk to me, Ace. I got the, I got the wide eyes with that. I like that. Um, this is Moses' turning point moment. So we're talking about way back when he kills this Egyptian because he sees, you know, what the text says. And, and here's why I think this is different, because there's a textual reality going on here. It is different. That's what I'm saying. Well, this isn't Moses choosing darkness. It's Moses. No, no, I write. Oh, I'm saying it's say? it's the inversion of of it's the it's the redemption of his murderous lies in the hiding of of. No, no, no. I'm saying that moment when okay. he kills the Egyptian uh-huh. was one of Moses's greatest moments. Oh, and here's why. What it says. So, if you remember back in the story, think back Prince of Egypt or or uh, Yul Brenner, <laughs> whoever your your Ten Commandments du jour. You know. Um, that was a stupid thing to say. Anyway, but he's he's it, what it says is Moses sees this Egyptian 
abusing his kinspeople. This Egyptian taskmaster right. is utterly probably physically maybe threatening the life of doing something horrible to the Israelite brothers and sisters. And what it says is Moses looked to his left and looked to his right and seeing no one, he went and killed the Egyptian, which we read. We're like, oh, he lo- he's looking around like sneakily. Is like, is anybody going to see me? Right. There's nobody around. I'm going to go do this. But that's not what it means biblically because there's another reference and I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, but there's another reference to God later on in the prophets where it says, God looked to his left and to his right to see if there was anyone to show justice for the oppressed. Oh. And seeing no one, God steps in and does it himself. So in the biblical tradition, what Moses is doing is not looking around as anybody going to see me. He looks around and he says, is anyone going to step in and help this person being abused? Will anyone stand up for this um, innocent soul? And seeing no one who will stand up and do what's right, Moses does it himself. Maybe he's defending the life of this person being abused. Interesting. Maybe he's, um, you know, protecting him in some way. And sometimes we have to, in self-defense or in defense of another, actually kill someone. That's a possibility. But that's the biblical um, uh, theme that that takes. So that's the moment that Moses says, no, I will stand up for God's justice and defend the oppressed. That's how the rabbis read that moment. Cool. And then he realizes... Oh, shoot. Crap, I've killed this guy, which means there's going to be a price on my head, which means I have committed a capital crime, so I need to jet. I need to flee. But it's not out of shame or anything like that. Or hiddenness. Yeah, it's not that. Anyway, that that's an aside. Well, but it says something about Moses' character, I think. Yeah, well, and he also looks, he comes down the mountain, he said, looks to his left and looks to his right and <laughs> says, will anybody yes! stand up for the justice? Yes, and you're absolutely nobody, right. Nobody, and then he's well, like... Well, Levi- the Levites... Too. Well, well, I mean, eventually they. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, oh yeah. no, hold on. On the first one, because he, mm-hmm. yeah, no, the Levites they do show up. Yeah, don't they, they do absolutely. They have a hard job. After and that. I don't, I don't know. There's debate over whether or not they were partaking in this or not. Maybe they were standing on the side saying, "No, this is a terrible idea from the beginning." We're we're not sure. Anyway, the point is that's the context. This is a pretty bad moment that we jump in, and um, uh, Moses is talking about who God is, and God is proclaiming his own identity. The verse we skip in verse 7 talks about how God will still, he, he won't ignore all sin. There are consequences, and sometimes the consequences for sin even reach down from generation to generation because there's things that actually stretch, and there's effects, and that sin matters. We skip that in our reading. We just kind of highlight the good parts. But that the Lord is merciful. He is gracious. He shows kindness and fidelity. Um, you know, he's like, if I find favor with you, Lord, do come along in our company. This is a stiff necked people, but pardon our weakness and our sins and receive us as your own. Again, he's saying all that. You don't feel the weight of what Moses is actually saying about God's graciousness and mercy unless you realize how badly they've fallen at that moment. Mm. And then you're like, oh, that mm. is gracious and merciful, even yes. though there's real consequence for that sin. Right. But that's our context. That's where we are. Again, what this has to do with the Holy Trinity I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. It's just like God is good. Oh, and he is. And and you know, you could I mean you could try to put the pieces in like well, eventually Jesus will be the one who ultimately gives them the grace to actually be the people they're supposed to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, I mean, you could go back and put the theological pieces together, but at face value I'm not seeing much of the Trinity here. Yep, me neither. All right, that takes us to Daniel, the responsorial Daniel. Glory and praise forever. 
Do you know what's happening? So it, the, just to, to give you a taste, glory and praise forever. Blessed are you, Lord, our God of our fathers. Praiseworthy and exalted above all forever. Blessed is your holy and glorious name. Praiseworthy and exalted above all for ages. Do you know what the context of that passage is? Isn't this the um, isn't this the pr- the book of Daniel? This is the prayer from the f- burning f- f- uh, f- uh, uh, kiln. <laughs> the kiln. <laughs> the kiln. It will kill. Ah, it will kill. It won't kill them. So this is yes, you're right. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? Daniel's uh, Hananiah, friends. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And Mishael. Why are there two different names? Do you know? Fun, um, fun biblical fact. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are their Israeli names. Israelite. Or, Israelite. <laughs> Israelite, yeah, Israelite names. And then their um, Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. Daniel has a Babylonian name as well. Do you know what it is? Um, no. Belshazzar. 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 So sometimes in the book of Daniel, I'll see a reference to a guy named Belshazzar. 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 Is Beljar? <laughs> Belch- Belcher. Um, Belger? No. Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Which is Daniel's Babylon. But so <laughs> because they're taken in captivity, the Babylonians don't speak Hebrew and have no interest in speaking Hebrew. They give them. It's the same. You know, so many of our forefathers who came over to Ellis Island, you know, from they wherever, would, yeah. were given Americanized names. It's right. the same and, kind of deal. Yeah, they'd pull off the ski if they're Polish and yeah, exactly. you know, stuff yeah, like that, you know. Um, so the point is, they're singing this prayer literally in the fiery furnace. <laughs> Not like after they've been set free or, you know, before they go in because they have all this hope. They're literally in the middle of the fire singing praises Seven to God. times hotter than it should be. <laughs> yeah, which, which, like, holy cow. Which, by the way, I mean, I've done a 10-cone fire before. Have you uh, sat in it? No, I mean, you have you been in there? You can't even touch the kiln. I mean, like you, you looking in, you have you should wear sunglasses lest you mm. burn your eyeballs because of the radiant the the the, the what kind of color? Lest and, you burn your eyeballs, <laughs> says the Lord. <laughs> says the Lord. No, I mean, like, dude, this is some Crayville stuff right here, man. And, and it actually leads to conversion. Yeah, the guards who were. Do you remember what they say at the end of this? Do you know what the king no. says? He says, I sent three men in there. How come I see four? Four and one walking like a son of man. Yeah. yeah. Which is really kind of beautiful. Because the an angel's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And there's conversions that come from this. But I guess the point of it is that this is this beautiful praise that we're given through the biblical tradition. But we have to remember that this is in the middle of the worst possible circumstances imaginable. They're in the fire that should be killing them. Well, but see, it's not. And that is, I think, the Trinitarian connection. I couldn't I couldn't make the first the first Trinitarian connection. But this one, if you think about the reality of the source of all things. Okay. Like the 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 one who created all, I mean like you think plasma's hot. You know what I, I'm I saying? didn't. I don't really know anything about yeah, plasma. Yeah, plasma is a state of matter that's very hot. It's, what does that have to do with my TV? <laughs> exactly. This is the question. <laughs> Okay. Um, but like, but like, you think about the hottest thing that you can imagine, and the the center of God is beyond intense that we could ever possibly understand. And so, mm. the the three men in the fiery furnace. I think that what's happening is that we're getting an image of what it actually means for humanity to be united to God. Oh. That that the, the three men in the fiery fur, four men in the fiery furnace are like God is so intense that we talk about the the uncreated light of God that hmm. that it's so far beyond our ability to actually take to ourselves that it, it's 
it's just super intense. So wow, interesting. So I I, like I, I just think that I think that's kind of a cool icon. Yeah, it is. And fire has always been representative of the Holy Spirit, right? Of course. So there's you that. have the cherubim who are on the fiery throne, and yeah, well, Pentecost last week, the tongues of fire, the tongues of fire. Okay, you know, all right, all right, I'm tracking with you. You know, that's cool. I dig my down the street neighbor pyro kid. You know, here or back home. Anywhere, <laughs> anywhere USA. There's yeah. some kid who really likes fire, yeah. and you shouldn't play with matches, kids. No, you shouldn't. All right, which takes us to the second reading, Second Corinthians, and the Corinthians are definitely playing with fire. fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an interesting, dude. You, you, <laughs> yeah, I did that. A, you have such an absurd laugh today. I love you. Um, this is the very end of Second Corinthians, which which is the end, for all intents and purposes, of the correspondence that we have between Paul and the church in Corinth, which is probably Paul's most troublesome church. And if you remember the, the correspondence between the Corinthian letters, I don't, I don't want to say he's harshest because he's really hard on the Galatians. He calls them stupid in that letter. But he's um, very detailed hard on the Corinthians. And they go back and forth. And it's, it's an ugly series of letters. Paul actually calls for the excommunication of some of them. He calls them babies. They're really ticked off about this. Second Corinthians is basically uh, Paul's defense of himself from having ticked them off so badly in first Corinthians. <laughs> and it's funny that what we get is just the closer of the letter where he just literally signs off and he's like, okay, great to talk to you. <laughs> you know, see you next time. Um, um, so we get the niceties, brothers and sisters rejoice, mend your ways, encourage one another, agree with one another, live in peace and the love of God uh, and the peace will love and the, the God of love and peace will always be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss by the holy ones. Greet you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with all of you. There's his the closing, Trinity. Yeah. The closing line literally has all three persons of the Trinity yeah. in his may they be with you. That That's true. But um, I, I knew this was a bad letter in the sense of it, it gets really ugly. Paul in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Father Peter, it's a profound letter if you really dig into it because this is the letter where Paul has to reconcile with his own suffering because what's happening in 2 Corinthians is that, again, he was pretty harsh in 1 Corinthians and he called them out for a lot of things. They don't like right, it. Right. So they've brought the hard accusations against him. And they're like, hey, who do you think you are? You are nothing. And they're like, you are, basically they have clearly responded that you are a terrible apostle, if you're even an apostle at all, because you suffer all the time and you're not a good speaker and you're not a good presence and you're ugly and you're short and you're bald and you're, you're always shipwrecked or sick or all this other stuff. And they're like, you don't look like a prophet. You don't look like a great speaker and a great orator. And you're, you're just not much. You're great on paper, Paul. That's one of the things they come out with. You, you write these strong letters, but then in person, you're terrible. You're a paper tiger. And Paul, throughout the course of the letter, has to do two things. He has to, number one, defend his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And simultaneously, reckon with the fact that actually they're right. I am always beat up yeah, and I am yeah. not much to look at. And how does that work out? And he comes to the conclusion of actually my being beat up and small and humble and all these things, that is actually to God's credit because to him be the glory. That, cre that gives me credit as an apostle because I'm not preaching myself. I'm preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. So if I look like I'm beaten and battered, well, I'm following in the imitation of Christ then. So he goes through this in the very end of the letter, the rest of chapter 13, he's literally saying, hey, if I come there, I'm probably going to have to excommunicate more of you because you guys are awful. Okay, well, talk to you later. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we just miss. And so we come to this kind of you know nice closer. But again, you get this very um, 
here's how you ought to live. Here's my encouragement in the midst of the hardest thing that I have to say to you, which is that some of you actually might have already cut yourself off from Jesus Christ. Hmm. And then he gives his encouragement. But again, like the rest of them, in the midst of some really hard stuff. Right. It's a, it's a fascinating... I, I was thinking this morning, I was talking to, to Anne, actually, and I, I don't I don't know how, what to do with this or how to reconcile this, but I was sympathetic to the Corinthians, as hard as that is to say. I, I'm not sympathetic. I mean, I, I know the truth. But at the same time, you know, we, we are in the Catholic world and we know, you know, the, the world of focus and the Augusta Institute and all these wonderful, powerful ministries that we're a part of. We're connected to all sorts of Catholic speakers and Catholic apostolates that are doing amazing things. Right. And if you think about, you know, the, the things that we look at on YouTube and the people we bring here to speak at CU and the focus conferences and all these things, you don't you rarely see someone who's not like incredibly attractive, super well spoken, crazy fashionable, like you know the cream of the crop. Everybody, lo- you go to a big focus conference or right. something, and these people look good, right? And you have to be like, Paul didn't. Paul did not look good. He didn't sound good. He wasn't a good speaker, and yet he is the greatest of the apostles in a certain sense, right? How do we reconcile that? And what if you know how how often do you know, we go to something like a big, cool conference and we come back and we're like, well, my parish priest is a little more boring than all those speakers that I heard. Right. I wish Father Peter was my parish priest. And I wish Father Mike Schmitz looked like, you know, and I'm stuck with Father whatever his name is. And he's not that great. And that's, I think, where I, I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile that. But I mean, Paul is that priest who doesn't necessarily look the part who doesn't necessarily have the great, powerful words when he's in front of people, have the stage presence but he gave himself. He poured himself out, and he says, that's what matters. What matters is that I've poured myself out to the end. Right. The little that I have, I've given. Right. And I, I, it's convicting to me, I guess. And I'm really blessed because we're here in Boulder, and we have dynamic, orthodox, well-spoken, good stage presence priests. We always do. We're a high-profile parish in that way. But what would I feel if I went to a place where... I didn't always feel edified by what the father had to say, or I didn't feel like he's, you know, this is where in my, you know, the Protestant world that I kind of come from in a lot of ways, I was always a Catholic, but you know, I was, I was very involved in my Protestant churches and I know a lot of my Protestant friends who I have a whole series of friends who have, who have basically gone from one church to another church, partially for the reason of, I have have friends that were part of one church. They kind of got tired of the preaching there. And somebody said, you know what, I bet I could do a better job than this pastor could. So I'm going to start my own church. And he started his own mega church. And then there were some people who said, you know what, I could probably do a better job than that guy could. So I'm going to start my own church. And they started their own mega church. And you can follow this trend and it's unsustainable. And so, you know, we could look, we could sit in our parishes and be like, I could do a better job than you. Right. Oh, guess what? I don't have the gift of the priesthood, so I can't. So I can do a podcast and I can give talks and I can do stuff. But my temptation is always to think, oh, I'm better. I could do this better. I, I mean, I wonder how many of the Corinthians are like, I'm a better speaker than Paul is. I'm yeah. more on top of it than you are. You but know, no, God gave the grace to Paul to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It, Does I, that make sense? Absolutely. Well, I, I, uh, I've been, we were talking before the podcast about like little like, like, you know how like you have things in your life that you return to that make you happy just mm. kind of instantly. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, um, 
machinist online has <laughs> on YouTube and he has a YouTube channel Click Spring and basically he just like makes clocks but like it's filmed exquisitely and it's like the most satisfying making of things like for for me it's like it's all precision and wonderful and he's got this wonderful Australian accent and he's just awesome but he's making the the this thing called the Antikythera device of course and, and the Antikythera device was believed to be, be made by Archimedes really who, yeah who and and on the front of the uh, uh, the device it calculates time using the difference between the olympiad and the isthmus games and and the isthmus games are what what would take place in corinth and so so i was just thinking about like here's archimedes this like it's like a michelangelo it's like it's like Mm. the like like the ancient world had these like you know you had in in this the this greek world you had aristotle you had mm. plato you had epiclitus socrates socrates you, you had archimedes you had like these like massive figures that were like absolutely utterly life changing that changed the whole world it's like yeah. it's like how do you compare you, you know like like the engineer down the street mm. who does it day in and day out and is creative with a Steve Jobs yeah. who's just like who's just so bigger so much jobs jo- jobs <laughs> I don't even know what his name is, dude. But like, but the you Apple know, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just like these larger than life figures, yeah. and you're like, you know, who cares about Joe Schmo engineer down the street? But but he's pioneering crazy stuff that's absolutely changing the world. Well, you know who I'm thinking of as you're saying this. Who? Who's the most aside from Jesus? Who's the most important male in the Bible? I don't know. Yeah, you do. Adam. Aside from Jesus, who is the most important male figure in the Bible? Adam. Joseph. Peter. Joseph. 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 What do we oh, know of Joseph? Yeah. What does Joseph say? Nothing. Nothing. What is he doing? He's a craftsman. Right. I don't know. I'm just reminded oh, of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see what he's you're saying. He's this quiet craftsman. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's not even a good craftsman. I really don't know. There's, we don't, we're not told. Right. But he doesn't say anything. Yet, he is the model in a lot of ways of masculinity, of fatherhood, of all of these things. He's one of the patrons of the church, for Pete's sake. Massive. He says nothing. Right. I don't know. There's something. There's something beautiful, that. and and so so like I so I can sympathize with the Corinthians because we yeah, do yeah, yeah. we do like our big characters, and when our big characters are slightly embarrassing, our embarrassing <laughs> uncle who says stuff that you just nobody else says, but needs to be said, that <laughs> yes. you're just like, oh, this is tough, and yeah. and yet he bases everything in the Trinity. It's hard to come up with the Trinity in these readings. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So let's go well, to the gospel. Okay. So God so loved the world that He gave us only Son. <laughs> um, God. So the Father God. didn't send the Son into the world to condemn, but the world would be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We missed the Holy Spirit in this one. Well, yeah. I mean, that's okay. <laughs> he's, he's in there, but he's a, it, dude. Okay, so this is this is the wild thing. He he, I like God did not send a Son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, like. That is the most fundamental spiritual shift that is the most important thing that oh. I can possibly imagine within our relationship with Jesus Christ oh. and with the Father and with the Spirit. Because mm. because if, if we miss this point, mm. if we miss the intentionality of God, if, if we don't see what God is trying to do, what does God come in? He says God didn't come to condemn, but that the world might be saved through him. Mm. And so like... So like we're, we live in an age where it's so tempting to get into a place of saying, I'm not enough. Oh, yeah. Um, I screwed up. Everything is horrible. Yeah. Um, 
I, my shortcomings are thwarting the will of God, yeah. my intellect or my will and all these things. And it's like, no, that's, that's not the fundamental orientation. It's that God came to be as a savior. So there's nothing that we can't come in and be for towards him. But that's also where like, maybe this is what the Holy Trinity Sunday is about is that in the same way, God has intentionality with us. We actually have to have an intentionality as well. What is my real desire in the midst of this? Is is, is what does salvation even mean? Does it mean that I want to be with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally and perpetually, or am I wanting to fulfill some rules so that I can go and do what I want? Or mm. you know what I'm saying? Like that's a yeah. it's a very direct spiritual fundamental shift. Yeah, oh, that's good. And and kind of based on all of the other readings, you're kind of expecting condemnation, right? Right. That's what they all sort of lend themselves to. Mm. In a certain sense, right? Yeah, we like all of the. It, it lends itself to the the sheer darkness of how rough things are. Or yes, seeing that my life is a condemnation because like mm. what what are, what are all of these? These people are thrown in furnaces. The the task that they have doesn't seem like it worked. Yeah. They're uh you, you know basically the, both they, in the case of Moses and Paul, Moses and Paul, and in the case of Daniel. I mean, they're and just, Daniel, good they're, point. They, they, they like fasted and they did all the stuff. They huh. did everything right, and still yet they got thrown in the. Yeah. The, the fiery fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so and in every single one of these circumstances, it would seem like they would were being punished for something that they did, which is what we always presume. We, we think sure. of that in our own lives. Am I so awful that I'm being punished because the circumstances of my life are so bad? And that's, mm. that's where I, I was preaching last weekend. And I said, the, the reality is, is that, that our lives are um, great long periods of confusion punctuated by meaning <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> and and so that's, yeah that's... So, so these are all really confusing things but then there's a moment where it's like no th- th- i didn't come to condemn you uh, like uh, in the in the uh, the cry of your suffering i sent my only son not to condemn you but to join you in your suffering so that your suffering would become meaningful and become the source of salvation along with jesus christ for the world. So this, this is like he bound himself to our, our, our sufferings in humanity as a whole and in the particular way because he's God so that we would not be condemned but we'd be saved and that we could actually say, no, look, what is, what is my North Star? My North Star is to be in the heart of God, Father, Son, Spirit. And how do we find the North Star? So I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, we never talk about the Alleluia. No, we sure not do. But the Alleluia says something important. Um, well, of course it says something important. But but in particular, so the, the reference is uh, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. And what it says, and what you'll hear during the Alleluia is, Glory to God, glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, who was and who is and who is to come, or who is and who was and who was to come. This is what makes faith livable is mm. recalling that doxology of God who was, who is, and is to come. And that's kind of the story of all of these. Moses, Daniel, Paul, all of them are recalling, they're, they're finding their sanity in, in what God has done in the past. Moses, like, hey, you've done all of these things for us. You can't stop now. Paul, like, look who Jesus, look at what he did on the cross. You can't live the way that you're living because of this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know because we know who God is. We trust that because of who God was and what he has done, that he in this moment will come to my aid so that I will be able to live in the future. Find that North Star and move forward, like you said. 
but that idea of who was, who is, and who is to come, this is the sense that all of these readings make of the ways of God. Right. And the reason that we can have these, what did you call them, periods of, of chaos marked by meaning? Yeah. Is because we can always, I mean, this is how the Bible works. Right. The The downfalls in the Bible are when people forget who God is and what he has done for us. Right. Then we lose sight of our past. We can't see our way in the present. And we've been blinded to our future. We see a hopelessness. Mm. And all three of them, all three of the, the first readings are seeing the truth of God and what he's done in the past, how that affects me right now in the present, mm. and how that will lead me in the future. Mm. And that's really what Jesus brings home then. It's because I didn't come to condemn the world. Even when you thought I did in the past, I did not. I came to save it, which I'm doing now for the sake of the church that I'm building. Mm. And that is, again, an icon of the Trinity. Right. The three. I, uh, yeah. Well, welcome to our apophatic uh, <laughs> podcast where we know less than we actually know Which about what God is. I mean, we can we can know what God did for us, but to know God in and of himself, as soon as we can posit something, it's hard to actually, we can say the, the opposite in this beautiful way. And this is true. So... Lord, help us in our understanding. May we truly be apophatic and then know that, God, you are bigger and more than we could possibly imagine and that you have surrounded us and embedded us and imbued us with your grace so that we can walk in the, the fiery light of your glory and grace. Wow, that's powerful. Boom. Boom. We'll see you next week. Okay, happy Christmas. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.